You're now listening to the Working Poet Radio Show. We're dedicated to exploring the working lives of creative people. I'm here with Kentaro Toyama at the Miami Book Fair. Kentaro is the W.K. Kellogg Associate Professor of Community Information at the University of Michigan School of Information, a fellow of the Dalai Lama Center for Ethics and Transformative Values at MIT, and author of the new book, Geek Heresy, Rescuing Social Change from the Cult of Technology. Kentaro, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Great. So I want to start because this is about work. This is about the creative life. Tell us what you were doing at Microsoft. I want to hear about that journey after that. But what were you doing at Microsoft? So I'm a computer scientist by training. You know, the, my book's title is Geek Heresy, so I'm a certified geek. Um, and uh, I worked in their research division. And in 2004, I moved to India to help the company start a new research lab. Mm-hmm. And with that, uh, I switched fields. I used to do uh, research in the area of computer vision, which is a kind of artificial intelligence. Um, but when I moved to India, I was looking for different ways to apply digital technologies uh, specifically to address the problems of the developing world. Mm-hmm. So we worked in projects in agriculture, healthcare, education, and so on, and all uh, applying digital technologies like personal computers, mobile phones, uh, uh, digital cameras, uh, sometimes our own hardware. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about the computer vision. What, what, did, what gravitated you towards this artificial intelligence, and what did you learn from it? So I majored in physics when I was in college, um, but uh, as much as I liked physics, I found that I, had, you know, I took a couple of computer science courses, and what I liked about computer science was that it was always creative. It was uh, always about producing something fundamentally new. Even when you're doing an assignment, you know, that's the same as all the other assignments that a computer science class has, um, you're still... You know, your own code is unique. It's not going to be the same as anybody else's. The way you solve the same problems will be different. And I really liked that creative process. Um, with computer vision, the idea was to apply uh, computers to, uh, for them to automatically understand imagery. So the idea was to take a photograph, for example, and try to understand, you know, are there people in it? Are there faces in it? Uh, and, you know, even can you recognize the faces? Wow. And that, that technology is being implemented in marketing now, correct? And are you happy with where that technology is going or what? I mean, I would say it's amazing how uh, much, how far that technology has come. Um, you know, these days uh, they are solving problems that I thought I would not see solved in my lifetime. Like what? Uh, just for example, um, you know, researchers at both Stanford and Google have recently been able to, uh, you know, provide very simple text descriptions of arbitrary images uh, with relatively high accuracy. I mean, it's nothing like, you know, what human beings can do yet, mm-hmm. but uh, to a surprising degree. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, if you have, you know, if I give one of these computers an image of, let's say, you know, somebody playing Frisbee, you know, they'll be able to say, it looks like somebody playing a game of Frisbee. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not something that, you know, I thought, again, that, you know, I've seen solved in my lifetime. So it seems like you you clearly have a passion for this work, but somehow along the way, did you lose that passion for that work? And what happened there? Uh, I always, you know, I still like uh, computer science for its intellectual um, challenges, but uh, in 2004, I began to feel that, you know, I really wanted to have a more... Um, uh, a different kind of contribution. I want to have a contribution that you know impacted society in a larger way, rather than you know simply providing new gadgets for people who you know already have a lot of things in their life. Mm-hmm. Well, wait, well, why? 
Uh, that's a good question. I guess I have been um, conscious always that uh, I was born to very, you know, lucky, privileged circumstances. Uh, you know, I've had a great education thanks to my parents. Um, and uh, and I've, you know, always known that there are many people in the world who haven't been born to those circumstances. Okay, so you're in India now and you're working for Microsoft. Microsoft probably didn't realize this trip would lead to something else. Tell me about India, that impact, and how this helped with the transition. Absolutely. So in India, uh, I put together a team of both technologists and social scientists, and we were looking for ways to use digital technology to uh, address problems of uh, poverty in India, but also in other developing world countries. And um, while I was there, uh, you know, I probably oversaw over 50 different kinds of projects, and, uh, you know, here's an example of one of them. So, for example, we would go to uh, rural government schools in the country, and they would often have uh, computer labs where there were four or five computers. Uh, but what would happen is, you know, entire classrooms full of 30 or 40 children would come in, and next thing you know, you have 10 kids surrounding one computer. Mm -hmm. uh, and one dominant child would take over the mouse and keyboard where everybody else kind of just watched. And so we thought, hey, this, this looks like something that we could solve using technology. And so we wrote software that allowed you to plug in as many mice as you have children. And then on screen would be different colored cursors. Uh, and so you could write educational software that allowed all the children to interact. Mm -hmm. And at least in research pilots, we found that children could learn as much, you know, five to one computer as they could if they had a single computer all to themselves. Mm -hmm. And so we thought, hey, this is great. You know, we, this is a low cost way to make sure that every child has a chance to interact with the computer. Mm -hmm. um, but when we tried to roll this project out, we very quickly kept running into problems that had nothing to do with the technology. So like what? Like, for example, you know, I remember in one case, uh, you know, having the uh, principal of a school show us where he kept his computers, and it turned out they were all locked up in a cabinet because he didn't want it to make sure they were they were safe. Uh, they, you know, they were covered in thick layers of dust. Um, you know, they just didn't have the kind of the budget or manpower to make sure that the computers are kept up to date and mm -hmm. to watch over them. Um, there were also challenges with teachers just being intimidated by the technology, uh, and in many cases, just administrators who didn't really care so much about whether the children were learning, but whether the school was keeping pace with the formal curriculum. So, I, and I know this experience leads you to your, your book, but what did India have an effect on you personally? So I think India was interesting because it is really a country of amazing contrasts. Uh, you know, it, it, on the one hand, you have a thriving IT sector, you know, one that, you know, people think of as an IT superpower. On the other hand, you know, more than two thirds of the country still earns, you know, no more than one or two US dollars per day. So it's a country that has these great contrasts. There are billionaires in the country, uh, as well as people who are, you know, living on less than a dollar a day. Mm -hmm. Um, what was interesting there was that uh, because of these extremes, you know, I saw technology use in a very different light. You know, in America, you know, all of us have smartphones and we're constantly ordering things from Amazon and, you know, we read on the Kindle and we Facebook with each other. Um, in India, there are people who are doing those things, but they're in a small minority. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, much of the country... You know, is glad just to have basic mobile, uh, basic mobile phone with you know no internet, um, and even the people who have mobile phones will not have the capacity to let's say buy things online because they don't have credit cards or bank accounts. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just a you know country of extremes, and in the extremes, what I found was that the same technology that we think helps us in our lives doesn't actually provide the same value to people who have you know fewer advantages. So now you write geek heresy, you know. How did this all contribute to this book? And what is your sort of premise of the book? So as I mentioned, you know, I was involved in about 50 of these projects. And um, 
in almost all of them, what I found was even though the projects would work as research pilots, uh, they failed when we tried to bring them to larger scale, usually because we couldn't find enough partners who were capable enough at what they were trying to accomplish to really absorb the technology. Mm-hmm. And uh, the conclusion that I ultimately came to is that technology by itself doesn't solve these social challenges, uh, but rather it amplifies whatever underlying human forces are already there. Mm-hmm. So if you have a good school with good teachers, good administrators, and parents who understand the mission of education, then you can often use technology in a positive way and help the kids. So wait, let's back up there. So you're sure. saying the Arab Spring is in response, social media is not responsible for the Arab Spring? Uh, that's a great question. Um, again, I would say that that's a case of amplification. Mm-hmm. Um, so first of all, uh, there's just no evidence that the social media by itself causes democratic revolution. So um, it turns out that in both Saudi Arabia and Bahrain, there were very active attempts on social media mm-hmm. to try to cause similar kinds of revolutions soon after the Egyptian revolution. But nothing materialized. And in fact, in the international media, we didn't hear much about these things. And largely that's because in those countries, uh, local civil society is completely stunted. Um, the monarchies in the countries don't allow any kind of you know, uh, offline organization. And so there's nothing for online protests to really take form uh, in the physical world. But doesn't that surprise people to hear that, uh, you know, that technology doesn't contribute to change? How do people react to that statement? Yeah, so I don't, it's not that I say that technology doesn't contribute to a change, but that it amplifies, again, whatever is already there. Um, Explain amplification. Amplification means that, uh, means that if you have positive human forces that are capable to begin with, then the technology can make things better. But if you're in a world in which those forces are either indifferent or corrupt, then no amount of technology turns things around. So, for example, you know, China has an amazing uh, rate of internet use. Uh, Something like 700 million people are on the internet and, you know, well over a billion people have mobile phones. Um, But we haven't yet seen, you know, at least significant efforts towards democratization. And I think that's because the country is still doing well uh, economically. And so people are still, you know, happy with their government. Uh, That might shift later. And at that point, the technology might, you know, help uh, push revolution along. But it won't be because of the technology. I often make the analogy to the American revolution, where, you know, we don't call the American revolution a lantern revolution because of you know, uh, one if by land, two if by sea, and Paul Revere. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that in every generation, revolutionaries will t- make use of whatever technology they have at their disposal to communicate and to get the word out. But that doesn't mean that it's those technologies that are causing the revolution. You know, some other human force is the underlying cause, and then the technology possibly helps accelerate that. So explain to me that human force, because this is a huge part of your book. If it's not technology that is contributing to social change, but what is uh, that's a great question. And I have to say, you know, I'm not really a sociologist or a psychologist or a, or even an economist. Um, you know, these are not areas of my expertise. But what I see time and time again is that it's human beings, their intentions and their abilities, their capabilities uh, that ultimately are the, the core root cause of any kind of social change. And whenever technology plays a role, and I do believe it does, um, it's again to amplify what you know, people really want to do and whether they're committed to doing those things. Take me to a moment, maybe in India, where you saw that happen. Uh, sure. So one of the projects that has continued to be successful in India um, is one called Digital Green. And this is a particular way of using digital video to help farmers uh, learn better agricultural practices. And uh, even though the project involves a lot of technology, um, 
the organization is now a nonprofit is very, very conscious that it can't do its work without good partners who already have established rapport with farmers and who are committed to an agricultural mission. So what the what Digital Green, the nonprofit, does is it teaches these other organizations that are already committed to improving agriculture a better methodology for getting the word out to farmers. Mm. And that methodology has been you know has consistently worked. But one caveat about it is that even though we use videos, even though uh, we use uh, lots of digital tools, it's not the videos and the tools that are by themselves causing farmers to learn. It's this addition of an organization that is working closely with the farmers, that has established trust with the farmers, that knows a lot about agriculture. And effectively, the technology that we apply to that situation amplifies what those organizations are doing. So is there an element that we as a society, and I know it's hard to make generalizations, but are we using technology incorrectly? Uh, yes, and we're also using technology correctly. So amplification means that you know both our good and bad use, you know, bad tendencies as human beings get amplified, um, which is why you know we you know we see in the media both stories of how technology does all kinds of positive things. You know, whether it's to help people become more aware of the news or, you know, help people understand that, you know, there are events that are hurting people in other parts of the world that they might never have heard of before. Um, at the same time, you know, we have people, you know, we have organizations like ISIS basically recruiting very effectively on the Internet. Uh, and so what that tells you is that it's not that the Internet by itself is either good or bad, but it's the human beings who use it that decide to, you know, make it, uh, uh, put it to positive or negative use. So, but it also allows us to look at ourselves in a new way too, correct? I think it does. Um, you know, I think amplification means that technology kind of uh, makes, you know, creates a caricature out of who we are. And so, you know, you find that exactly the people who are most distractible are the ones who can't seem to, you know, uh, take their eyes off their smartphones. And the people who are very focused and, you know, who know what they want out of their work life are the ones who use their technology in a productive way. So let's bring it back to you then. What did you learn about examining your own process and experience with technology about yourself? Um, well, so, you know, partly as a result of these, uh, you know, these uh, uh, discoveries, I've been very conscious of the fact that some uh, technologies are very helpful to me in my work. I mean, I certainly use a laptop at work. Uh, you know, I have a mobile phone. But I'm also aware that, you know, I have tendencies to be distracted. And so I actually don't own a smartphone, oh. even though I'm a Wait, wait. Describe this phone you're holding up right now. <laughs> so the phone that I use, this is a old, old Nokia phone. You, can, you, know, you can't even see the label You probably anymore. have snake on there. <laughs> it does, in fact, have snake <laughs> on it. Um, this is the only mobile phone I've owned in the United States. It's over 11, 12 years old wow. now. Uh, and, you know, one of the great things about these is that the battery life is still good. I don't have to charge it for, you know, over a week. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, and people ask me, you know, how can you live without a smartphone? Yeah. But, you know, the amazing thing is I don't feel like I'm losing that much. Uh, every once in a while I need to check something online or send an email urgently and not having a smartphone is certainly a hindrance. But, you know, compared to that, I think the number of times when I've, I haven't been distracted by my phone is, you know, well worth that trade-off. Great. So, you know, we're, we're getting close to wrapping this up, but tell me about the creative class and what that is. So uh, Richard Florida, who's a sociologist, has this idea that, um, you know, that much of the world is moving in a direction uh, in which is dominated by what he calls a creative class. These are people whose work is primarily about, um, you know, creation of knowledge and manipulation of knowledge uh, and new information. Um, you know, they're artists, scientists, uh, possibly doctors um, and so on. And 
What's interesting is that for the first time in many, uh, especially in the developed world countries, a large percentage of the population is doing creative class work. Uh, and I think that's fantastic. But I'm actually more interested in what I think it might eventually lead to, which is a compassionate class. Um, you know, we're beginning to see possibly little bits of this where, you know, I see, you know, some of my undergraduate students, they're very interested in trying to understand how, um, you know, how they can contribute to society in a larger way. Uh, whereas, you know, I would say, you know, myself and possibly my parents in their generation, they were thinking more about, you know, how can we ensure that we have a secure, you know, financial future for our own families. So something is possibly shifting. And if that shift happens in a big way, then I think it's potentially transformational for us in that um, we'll have many, many more people, many leaders thinking about how really to genuinely create a, um, a positive society rather than just worrying about our own families or ourselves. So the act of creation does contribute to a large change? I think it's through, you know, certainly through creation, some of these changes happen, but in some ways they're also post-creation. Um, you know, if you think about it, you know, those of us who are engaged in kind of creative class activities, they're largely for making ourselves, you know, uh, happy and satisfied. It's kind of a self-actualization level. Um, but really what we want is to reach a point of self-transcendence where, you know, we have to move beyond making ourselves happy. But I do think that it's essential that we're happy first. You know, mm -hmm. it's, you can't really be compassionate until you're, you're fully satisfied and happy with your own life. Was this a transition you went through after you left Microsoft? I would say it's a transition that I'm still struggling to make. Really? Um, yeah, awesome. absolutely. I mean, you know, I am very conscious that, uh, you know, what I really like is the intellectual challenge of research. And, but that's, you know, at some level, very selfish activity. Uh, as much as I hope some of my work has larger impact, the reality is, you know, most of it is for me. It's because I enjoy it. Um, whereas, you know, I think if I were really, really committed to uh, trying to support the people that I'm trying to help through my research, then I would probably do something very different, possibly, you know, run a nonprofit or try to work in, uh, you know, government policy where some of these changes could really make an impact. Great. Well, I really appreciate your time. Is there anything else you'd like to say about Geek Heresy? Uh, yeah, I hope uh, people uh, pick up a copy and read it. I'd love to hear comments from readers. Thank Great. You. It's a wonderful piece of work. I really enjoyed it. And I'm so glad you took the time to be here with us at the Miami Book Fair. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. No problem.